Well, welcome to Grace this weekend. Thanks for being here. If uh, you are here in the room or maybe if you're watching online, thanks for tuning in that way. And a good chance that we haven't met yet if you maybe have just started coming in the last handful of months. And so I'd love to meet you maybe sometime after service. Say hi. And I'd love to hear how you made your way to Grace, catch your name and all that good stuff. But I am fired up about this series we started just last weekend called The Most Interesting Man in the World. Right? And, and I am uh, excited to kind of dive into it and take a look at Jesus. And here's really what we said we're going to do. We said we want to take some time and step back and look at Jesus kind of with fresh eyes. And really, no matter where you stand in regard to your faith in Jesus, if you've been following Jesus for 10, 20, 30, or 40 years, maybe you kind of came to church in the womb, or if you are here and you're not even sure if you want to believe in Jesus or not, uh, maybe you're saying, I'm not sure about the whole Jesus thing. No matter where you stand on that spectrum, all of us can take a step back and look at the, kind of objectively look at the life of Jesus and say, this man had the most profound impact on the planet of probably anybody that we could possibly imagine. And if you take a step back to look at it, it's kind of mind-blowing when you take a look, right? So, so think about it even today. Today, there are people of all kinds of languages, people on all kinds of countries, right, on all kinds of continents that, are, that would say, Jesus is the most important person in my life. And I'm going to govern all of my decisions based on who he is and what he's about. And if we scanned kind of the whole planet and looked, we would say there are church buildings and millions of dollars that have been invested simply to learning about and knowing who this man is. Even our time, like the fact that it's 2018 today, was someone's attempt to look back and say, we're, we're trying to get close to the birth of Jesus because that's when it all really started and we base our calendar off of this guy being born. Like that's mind-blowing that that would be true. And our holidays, what we celebrate, right, kind of woven into the fabric of our culture is Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. And I, I don't know, I personally, I didn't grow up in church. I had no religious background at all. And uh, for me, I celebrated Christmas and Easter as in like we did the, the gifts thing and we had the trees and we had the, did the bunnies at Easter. And I just thought like, this is fun. This is like normal, good stuff. Everybody does the Christmas and Easter thing. I thought it was about like an overweight guy with a beard and right, reindeer and that whole thing. And, and I thought Easter was about bunnies for some reason. And it, but we look at that and if even holidays, even how we celebrate holidays, it's all connected back to the person of Jesus. I never connected the dots on that. It's crazy. Like I would have looked and said, I, I didn't even realize that Christmas and Easter is about Jesus. You're like, Ryan, man, you're a little slow, bud, right? Like that's pretty obvious. Come on. But I didn't connect the dots. We didn't do that. Like we didn't make that connection that this is what this holiday was about. I thought it was just a time you got presents and like Easter was kind of an afterthought where you got chocolate and it's cool. But the reality is that our life, our values, the way that we see the world, right, all of it, it's all imprinted, impacted. The fingerprints of Jesus' life and the reverberations of his impact are everywhere. It's almost impossible to unwind it all, right, and to see it kind of with fresh eyes and say, wow, Jesus really did impact the world and change things in ways that we even kind of a hard time calculating and putting it all together. Right? And, and by the way, he did all of that in 33 years, right? In a very, very short life, the person of Jesus leaves this indelible mark that's impossible really to get our head around. 
And so a lot of us would look at that and say, wow, this is fascinating. He really is the most interesting man in the world. And most of us would be somewhat familiar with some of the stuff that Jesus did or what he would have claimed to do if you're investigating those claims, right? We would know that he, he died on a cross and then that was a big deal and that he rose from the dead. And that's what Christ's followers believe. But do we actually know what Jesus was like? like do, you, do you ever wonder, like, what would it have been like to hang out with Jesus? What would it have been like to share a meal with him, right, to, to go hang out with him? What was he like when he was around people he didn't get along with, like what, right, somebody had tension with? What, was, what would that have been like? What is, what is it that makes Jesus tick, and how does he function? What drove him, and what's his personality like? Man, it'd be fascinating to take a good look at that, wouldn't it? That's what we're going to do. We're going to dive in and say that Jesus is worth our time and energy and our attention. We want to get to know him kind of on a personal level. How can we see him with fresh eyes as the, the one who's really at the center point of all this impact? And for, certainly for, for followers of Jesus, uh, he's at the center of our faith. All right, so we're going to do that. We're going to take some time and dive into that conversation. We started that last weekend. And uh, Pastor Jeff really laid down some foundational kind of truth about who Jesus is, that he is, of course, fully human, and he's also fully God. It's part of the Trinity, which is a big concept that Jeff laid out for us last week. And if you missed that, I encourage you to catch up online. You can do that through our website, graceohio.org, or uh, of course, through the app or our YouTube channel as well. So we're going to dive into it. And really what we said as we kind of went into the series is we want to set up camp in the book of John. And uh, we said John would have been one of Jesus' best buddies, one of his best friends, one of his disciples. And John would have been one of the four guys that took some time to make a unique account of Jesus' life. Right? So there's something called the gospel account. It's like a unique look at Jesus' life from a specific angle. And he's, they kind of pick and choose the stories they tell about Jesus to drive home certain points about him. Right? And so John does that as well. And John does something that's kind of radically different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are the other three guys that wrote accounts of Jesus' life. What John does, as he writes a little bit later, is he sets it out in a context of a series of signs. He captures a bunch of things that Jesus would have done, major kind of miracles that Jesus did, and he presents them to his readers. And by the way, this is kind of neat. This would have been fairly normal at this time that somebody who claimed to be a big deal, if somebody claimed to be a significant teacher or leader or claimed to be a miracle worker, someone else would write down what they did and see if what they did matched what they claimed. So that's what John's doing. John's saying, here, let me tell you about my friend and my Lord Jesus, and let me show you what he did. Let me show you what he claimed to have been and been about, and then I'm going to kind of leave it in your court. I'm going to let you decide. What do you want to do with Jesus? Who do you think that he is? And do you want to believe in him? And can you see him with fresh eyes? Right, kind of break out above the culture, above what we would have thought about a religious system. And can I see the person of Jesus in a fresh, in a real way? So that's what we're going to do. Look at kind of each one of these signs over the next bunch of weeks. And each time we look at a sign, you're only going to get an incomplete, kind of a, a, a short version, a, a snapshot of Jesus. You're not going to get the whole picture. You can't get the whole picture. Each one of these signs captures an aspect of who he is. And so each week, we're going to get one of those pictures. And at the end, we're going to put them all together and be able to see, wow, this is who Jesus is. 
Boy, I want to know that man. I want to know him, and I want him to be my Lord, I believe, is the conclusion many of us will come to, and some of us in a fresh way. So let's dive into it. What we're going to do is look at this first one, and this one's a ton of fun. This is Jesus' first miracle, his first sign that John talks about, and it's going to be the story of Jesus turning water into wine in the context of a wedding. Okay, fascinating stuff. What we're going to do is read through that story first, and then we're going to kind of come through, and i got to kind of walk you through some history and some context of how this thing sets up for it to make the sense that it would for the original people that read it. But here we're going to read this first together. John chapter 2, starting uh, in verse 1. Let me read the story. And uh, if you have a Bible, highly encourage you to open that one up. John chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, not a big deal at all. Uh, just grab a, one from underneath the chairs there and open up to page 740 in those chairs or in those Bibles. And uh, you can take that home with you if you want. If you need a copy of the Bible, encourage you to do that. You, of course, can read along with me on the app as well. John 2, starting in verse 1. Let me read it and we'll come back through it. Here's what John tells us. He says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. It says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill them to the brim. So they filled them. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though his servants who had drawn the, wa the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. He says, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Okay, a lot going on here in this story, a lot of fun. So let me kind of get us set up and, and kind of put us back into this context. Here's what's happening. Jesus and his mom and his followers, his disciples, that's what a disciple is, is a follower of a rabbi. Jesus would have been thought of, thought of as a rabbi. They would have been invited to this wedding. And a wedding in the ancient Jewish world was kind of unique. Uh, in some ways, they have some commonality with how we would view a wedding, right? There would have been dancing, celebrating. It would have been awesome, like a lot of fun, a big celebration. Marriage was held in high regard in Israel, but it would have been like a week-long celebration. People took off work, they traveled in, and they're like, we're going to have a blowout wedding. It's like for real. And, and the bride and the groom, right, they would have planned all this, and their families would have been highly involved in making this thing happen. And Jesus is there. He gets the invitation, right? He gets to be a part of it. His mom is there as well, of course, and his disciples. Now, it, right away, I want us to see this because it's hard to kind of capture it uh, right off Jump Street. I want to recognize that it's significant that Jesus even shows up to this event. It's kind of a big deal because a lot of us, I don't know what your view of Jesus is, but sometimes we view Jesus as kind of a sterile isolated figure that maybe is kind of separated from us, that there's no way Jesus would have hung out at a, at a social gathering, at a kind of a normal place. 
And it's exactly what he does. One of the things I want us to draw kind of right away, Jesus could be found in common places with common people, right? He wasn't too spiritual for any setting or too holy for anyone. That's huge, right? So right away, when I, when I see Jesus, I don't want to think monk in a monastery somewhere, right? That's disconnected from the everyday normal parts of life. I don't want to see him as kind of the weird spiritual guru out in the desert where, where nobody can get to him. Think of Jesus around a table at the wedding, right? He might even be boogieing, getting down, right? Dancing at that wedding, who knows? But he would have been found in kind of common places. Didn't live in the church building or the synagogue is how the Bible would talk about it. He's all over the place. He's with people and he's among them. And if we dug into the story deeper, we would see that he's found with common people. He's not just hanging out with the religious elite. He's not just hanging out with the wealthy. He's hanging out with sometimes even questionable company, sometimes former prostitutes or tax collectors, people that the rest of society would look at and say, those people are expendable. Uh, they're not worthy to be around or to hang out with. Jesus hung out with those people. And you see Jesus spending lots of social space time with people, being among and around and in those crowds and with people kind of all the time, right? Common places with common people. And this is important because my view of Jesus is going to affect, if I'm going to be his follower, how I live. Because sometimes, isn't this true, that maybe we or maybe people we know who are followers of Jesus aren't like Jesus in this way. We, we, we want to disconnect ourselves from other people or from other people that are not acceptable, who are too sinful for me. Now I'm holier than thou, and I can't be around you. It's not what Jesus was like at all. Jesus was able to be around all kinds of people. He was able to laugh and relax and enjoy and celebrate. He's not uptight, right, and super stiff. He is, he's able to be himself and celebrate life and enjoy it. That's big. That's a big deal. And so we, if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, I want to have that mindset too, right? I don't need to be the fun police. I almost made this line say something like this. Jesus was not a fun sucker, right? He didn't suck the fun out of the room. That's not the idea. Jesus was enjoying that. He would have been around it. He would have been able to smile and laugh kind of just like the rest of us, okay? So we're in this wedding, and pretty quickly, what's going to happen is we're going to run into a problem at the wedding. Now, if I'm reading it from right 21st century, I'm not going to see this problem right away, but I'm going to understand that it's there. And here, here's what the problem's going to arise. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. This has become a major problem in ancient Israel at a wedding. Let's talk about it. First, let me address that, kind of the elephant in the room. Let's talk about the wine thing. Okay, because I know a bunch of us would have grown up thinking or hearing or believing that alcohol in and of itself is wrong or bad or inappropriate in its entirety. They would have been, you, some of you have been taught that this was grape juice. Okay, let me just say something. It wasn't grape juice. Okay, people don't get drunk ever on grape juice. I'm just saying it says it in the story right there. Right, so it wasn't grape juice. Let's just be honest about that. It had alcohol in it. It probably almost certainly had less alcohol than our alcohol, right? You didn't have the distillation process, but there was real alcohol and you could really get drunk on it, right? Obviously people were doing that. We just read it. So alcohol, let's talk about that for a second. Alcohol in and of itself is not wrong 
and is not sinful, listen to me, drunkenness is sinful and wrong. And if you have ever interacted with alcohol, you know that that line can be relatively fuzzy, okay? So you should know that. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus and say, I want to interact with alcohol in a relatively healthy way, you shouldn't have very much of it, or you're going to be in a dangerous place very, very quickly. Let me also say this. If you're someone who has personally been in a situation where you have abused alcohol, or you have family members, or a history of alcohol abuse, maybe even in your family, listen, do not use this story as a license to either jump out of recovery or to encourage someone else to jump out of recovery. It may be wrong for you to interact with alcohol at all. And so if you have a line where you say, I can't drink alcohol, I would look at you and say, right, that's exactly right. And if you've made a decision personally to say, you know, I don't want to interact with alcohol at all because I don't even want to go down that road, awesome. Okay, that's great. I just don't want us to, rec- to say, to try to erase it from the Bible because it's kind of right there in plain day. If you want to enjoy with good faith and a clean conscience in a non-abusive way a glass of wine, you have freedom to do that. Just do it carefully and respectfully, right? So there's wine is involved in the story. Now, the context of what's happening is they ran out of it, right? They ran out of it. And it's hard for us to see why this is such a big deal. But this groom and his family would have saved probably from close to the birth of this son to pay for the wedding that he would one day have. And they would have invited as many people as they could. They would have had a blowout, massive party wedding, would have been huge. But in ancient Israel, one of the highest values in that culture is hospitality. So one thing that you do not ever do is run out of food or run out of wine. If you ran out of food or you ran out of wine, you were like the laughing stock or the ridicule kind of target of the culture for years. Remember that one wedding that we went to? We ran out of wine, right? That would have been like a big no-no, major faux pas. And I see this happen. Like I married a Lebanese lady, Middle Eastern lady. She's unbelievable. Lori's awesome. And and I see this even show up 2,000 years later in our culture now uh, because it kind of carried through this high value for hospitality. So if you come to my house, you'll never run out of food. I don't care how much you eat. There's going to be shawarmas and hummus and tabbouleh and falafel and grape leaves. There's like food everywhere. It's awesome. You're all invited, right? I'm surprised I'm not like uh, quite a bit heavier, but right? hospitality is a huge deal for my wife, Lori. Why? Because it's, it's been transferred through her family culture, right? In the Middle East, it's a major, major value. And so this would have been a big deal. Uh, more than just like, uh-oh, boy, we're out of, some, can somebody run down the street and grab some extra wine? We're out of it. This would have been like, their family will be shamed and disgraced for decades kind of thing. There's even a report where a bride's family could sue the groom and their family because they made them look bad by not planning well enough. It was like a big deal, right? So Jesus' mom wraps Jesus into this problem that's erupting, and she's like, hey, like, they ran out of wine. This is going to be a problem, right? It's going to be kind of a big deal. And I love this. Jesus, of course, uh, in classic fashion, interacts with his mom, and here's what he says. He's a woman why do you involve me, right? Which is just awesome. I love it. Because when, when we hear a man talk to a woman, I don't care, and, and he calls her woman, we start to get a picture in our mind. And that picture usually involves a white tank top, a couch, and 
<laughs> something down that road. Let me just make sure that this is clear. That's not what's happening, okay? That's not what's happening. When he uses the word woman, it's a term of endearment. It's, he's actually going to use the same word when he's on the cross talking to his mom, right? It's, it's a term close in. He would have loved her. And he looks at her and he says, Mom, why do you involve me? It, right, woman, why do you involve me in this? And so here's kind of how the modern day um, interpretation would go. It's something like this. Mom, seriously? <laughs> we're, we're doing this right now, right? Like, it, you got to think, like, Jesus had a real mom. It's a real mom and son banter. You know, she's like, there's a problem. My son can fix it, right? My son can fix all the problems, right? Every mom believes that. It's just how it works. And I don't know what she had in mind when she got Jesus involved. But did she think he was going to just be like, boom, water to wine, or just like invent it? Or I don't know what she had in her mind. But she got Jesus involved in this thing. And he's like, I, I, I don't want to do this. Why are you involving me, right? And then he goes, he says something pretty profound. He says, my hour has not yet come. They're at this party, it's a relaxed setting, and Jesus, Jesus is pulled into this problem that's happening, and he says this one thing that sounds kind of weird in the moment. He says, my hour has not yet come. And here's something we get, get to see about Jesus. Jesus is always conscious. He, he's always clear about why he's on the planet. Jesus knows exactly what he's come to do and exactly why he was born, the reason why he lives and for Jesus, when he says, my hour has not yet come, all throughout the book of John, when we hear about his hour, what he's referring to is his death on the cross. Like one day, my hour is going to come, and my life is going to get wrapped up, and there's going to be a series of events that leads to that. And we're not there yet, Mom. Like, I'm not ready to get on that train. I'm not ready to get this thing going. Why do you involve me? I think it's fascinating and refreshing that Jesus is so clear on who he is, on why he's come and what he's about. Here, here's what I would say. He, he knew why he was on the planet, and all of his decisions were governed by that purpose. Everything Jesus does is going to be governed by who he was and what he knew he came to do. So as you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to see him saying things like this. He'll say, I have come to seek and to save the lost. I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. Jesus has with, with crisp, razor clarity, a purpose, and he knows why he's on the planet. Man, isn't that what, what we're all looking for? I want to be like that. I want to know why I get out of bed in the morning. I, I want to know why I exist is it really just to try to kind of get through life and find cheap thrills along the way? And what is this whole thing about? And for me, part of how I came to know Jesus was trying to find my own purpose. I would have kind of run through, in my view, what the, the best of what this world has to offer, right? Had a little bit of success, made a little bit of money, had a little bit of sex, right? Dabbled with all this. I tried to change myself but couldn't, ran out of answers. And after you have all those cheap kind of temporary thrills, what you're left with is what we all know, kind of a deep and a gnawing question, what am I actually here for, right? And no matter how much noise I try to put in my life to drown that question out, no matter how busy I get trying to get away from it, it haunts me. Why am I on the planet, and what am I here for, and what's it all about? 
that question would drive me ultimately to the person of Jesus. And the closer, this is still true today, the closer I get to Jesus, the more I understand what my life's about because I see my purpose in the shadow of his. Right? I love that. I love looking at Christ and knowing there's a certainty and there's a reason and there's an intentionality to all that he did. Okay, love that. It's all there. Jesus is going to then respond to his mom. This is fantastic, right? His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you, right? So he says, mom, this isn't my time. My hour's not yet come. And then she, she just like totally ignores him, right? And she looks at the servants that are standing by me and she's like, oh, he'll take care of it, honey, right? That's about, that's about how I view that playing out, right? Do, do whatever he tells you to do, right? I can just imagine her walking away, walking out of the room, classic mom-son relationship there. And it's a beautiful thing. Now, what he does is something that's kind of weird. Okay, I just need to, I got to lead you into the culture to kind of see it. Here's what John tells us, and he tells us this stuff on purpose. It's important to see it. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. That phrase is going to be super important, right? He tells us that on purpose. There's all kinds of stuff that, that Jesus could have put water into, and John makes sure to tell us, hey, they use the water jars, the kind we use for religious stuff. Ding, 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 ding. Pay attention to this. Right? He says, each holding 20, 30 gallons. So he's got these six jars. It's about 150 gallons of potential stuff could go in there. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. So they're at this party. And, and they would have had, like I said, containers, pitchers that they could have filled wine with or, or filled with water. These servants would have had no idea what was going on because Jesus looks at them and says, he doesn't tell them to go fill the wine containers with water. It would be like him saying, hey, uh, go fill the baptismal tub with water. And these servants would have been like, are we going to do something religious? Like, what's going on here? Because these stone water jars would have been used for, they call it ritual cleansing. It would have been part of the religious system. And everybody reading this and the people in the room experiencing this would have all triggered and thought, oh, if we're doing something with those stone jars, we're doing something that has to do with religion. We're going to go do a religious thing right now. And the servants, I'm positive, I wish I could have heard their conversation because certainly as they filled 150 gallons of water into these stone water jars, they would have been like, do you have any idea what's going on right now? I thought we had a wine problem. Are we going to like baptize somebody? Is somebody doing something religious over here? Where are we going to get the wine again? Because remember, Jesus isn't Jesus at this point. He's the carpenter guy, right? Nobody knows what's going on. You imagine how weird that would be to be those servants and be filling those jars? You'd be like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever done. They have this crisis on their hands. It's going south fast, and I'm filling up the baptismal. Like, what am I doing, right? It's amazing. And, and here's what's then, then it happens. He says, then he told them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Let me talk to that for a minute. So somewhere in between, filling these stone jars with water and then taking that water and, and delivering it to the, the MC, the master of the banquet, somewhere along that way, Jesus transformed that water into wine. 150 gallons, a lot of wine. Did he do it the moment they poured it in there? 
Did he walk over and did he, did he touch it? Did it change as they scooped up glass to, to take it over to the MC? And as they walked, did it transform in their hands? Man, I would love to know the answer to that. We're not told. All we know is that it changed, it transformed from water into wine. And those servants are watching this whole thing play out, man. And I wish we had some commentary from what they were thinking because their minds would have been absolutely blown. Then they're like, wow, I thought we were doing some weird religious thing. Jesus just changed everything. He changed the water into wine right here, right now. He, they bring it then to this MC, right, the master of the banquet. This guy doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know a miracle just happened. He doesn't know about the whole thing the servants just did. He just got a glass of wine from the servant. He's like, oh, somebody found some wine somewhere. Neat, right? And here's what happens. He did not realize where it had come from. The servants who had drawn the water knew, right? They're watching him drink it like, I hope it's okay. He made it from the baptismal, right? Like, hopefully this is going to work. Um, then he called the groom. Just hear this as groom. It says bridegroom. Calls the groom aside we have no idea what's going on in the groom's mind. He, I'm pretty sure, has no idea of what's even happening, nor does he even comment in this whole situation. And he, goes, he pulls the groom aside. He's the guy responsible for if this thing crashes or if it succeeds. And the MC looks at him and says, everybody brings out the choice wine first. Everybody brings, it's culturally normal to run everybody through the best first. Right? Give them the good stuff. When they get a little tipsy, you can give them the cheap wine, right? It's the idea. And, and then he walks, he says that, right? You bring out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. And then he tastes this wine. He said, you saved the best till now. This is the very best, right? Culturally, we, we would have run through all the, all the wine that our culture has to offer. And then now you're giving me something new. And it's the best it's the best I've ever had. Now, here's the conclusion that John gives us to the story. He says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs. When you hear that word first in the original, kind of the original language, it's the beginning. It's kind of the, the foreshadowing. It's the start, right? The first of the signs, the beginning of the signs. He's showing us something. The beginning of the signs through which he revealed his glory, he started to show everybody who he was, what he's going to be about, and what he ultimately came to do. It says, and his disciples believed in him. So, at one level, in one moment, as this first sign plays out, certainly Jesus saved the day. Right, as an act of mercy to this groom and his family, he provided wine for them. He transformed water into wine. It's a miracle. Everybody's happy. He honored his mom in the process. All that played out, and that kind of summarizes that first sign. What's awesome about Jesus is Jesus is always pointing, always leading us to kind of a deeper truth and a deeper reality. That's exactly what he's going to do in this scenario. See, Jesus is going to kind of tip his hat with this first sign. He's going to show just a small group of people, right? Because really, really, who all even knows about this? Those servants, the disciples, his mom, maybe like 10 or 15 people. This isn't this big public thing. But he begins to show them what he's really all about. 
And he wants them to understand what he's really come to do, right? What his hour is really going to hold. Because here's how this would work. Later, when John and the rest of the disciples looked back on this first sign, after they got over that kind of the initial shock and awe of Jesus transforming water into wine, they would have looked and thought about what happened and thought Jesus did that on purpose. He could have put water in the wine jugs. And you know what he did? He put water in the ceremonial washing jars. And, and, and he, would have, he would have said, listen, here, here's where I'm tipping my hat at. I want you to understand this is coming. I'm going to change water to wine. I'm going to change your religious system, right, from this old way of doing things. I'm going to give you something brand new. I'm going to fulfill it. I'm going to take it to the next level. I'm going to pull new out of the old, so to say. And I'm going to give you what you've always been looking for, what you couldn't find in your religion trying to get to God. I'm going to give you now in relationship. I'm going to give you new wine. Wine would have been a symbol of joy, and everybody would have known that. I'm going to bring you a joy out of this religious system that I'm going to change and transform that you've never experienced before. Oh, and by the way, the culture, the, the wine, the joy that you've experienced so far, you know, you had the best, the, the, you had the best of the wine that our world has to offer. Right? And you even have some of the cheap stuff. You even had the cheaper thrills. I'm bringing you the best right now. The highest joy, right? The, the most, the deepest transformation you can possibly have. I'm going to turn water into wine. Uh, that wine is going to be better than anything you've ever experienced. And that wine, the life you're looking for, the joy you're looking for, it's not out there. It's, it's not in a religion. It's not in a culture. It's a changed life that I'm going to provide from the inside out. I'm going to give you new wine. Put down that old, cheap gas station wine, right? Throw it in the trash. Put away your old religious way of doing things. I'm bringing something new. And it's going to be better than anything you've ever experienced. I think he was tipping his hat to what he ultimately was going to be about. The ultimate fulfillment of the life of Jesus is this. We see it in the book of Revelation he who is seated on the throne where Jesus is today, he says, look, I'm making all things new. I'm making everything new. I'm going to transform everything. And the first glimpse of that is water into wine. I can transform this water into this wine. I can change this religion into a relationship. I can take your old life and make you new. I can take the old Ryan and make a new Ryan, a purposeless, hopeless, joyless Ryan who's desperate to find hope in this world. I can implant that into your life and make you new from the inside out. And Jesus, his disciples look back on what had happened here. They're like, this guy is the real deal. He's bringing revolution. He's bringing change. He's changing everything. The, the new life that Jesus offers is better than the best of religion or culture. The new wine, the new joy, it's higher and better and deeper and more than anything that this world has to offer, any religion has to bring. Jesus can change water into wine transform those water pots into something new. 
He can change me from the inside out. You say, Ryan, that's fascinating, man. That's a mind-blowing thing to look at. What do I do with that? How do I look at Jesus' first miracle, kind of walk away with it, kind of a takeaway, walk away changed? I think if Jesus was pointing us to what he was teaching here in John 2, I think he would look at us and say, listen, if you think, if you think the wine of this culture is the best there is, right? even the choices, if you think having more money and more sex, more cash in the bank, if you think that's where life is and joy is, you're missing it. I think he would look at us and say, if you think being, being a safe, middle-class, comfortable, North American, suburban Christian is where it's at, it's, it's actually much more than that. If you think the American dream is going to give you the highest joy, you're missing it. What I have to offer you, and the best there is to find the joy that is inexpressible, is not found out there. It's not circumstantial. It doesn't have to do with a bank account or a marriage status or a promotional ladder or zip code. It has to do with a change and a transformed heart and a relationship with the one that made everything. I think Jesus would look at us religiously and say, listen, if you're depending on the water pot, if you think your religious system, your connection to religion is bringing you a connection to God, you're missing it. If you think growing up in a somewhat sort of Christian nation makes you my follower, oh, you're, mi- you're missing it. If you, if you think being raised by parents or people that, that went to church makes you my follower, if you say, my grandpa was a pastor, my uncle was a pastor, I know, I know other people that are connected to Jesus. He said, that's not, that's not how it works. This is a tough one. If you think saying a special prayer and going to some religious services and trying to be a good person is being my follower, you're missing it. I came to make you new, new from the inside out. The wine I bring, the joy I bring, the life I bring is something that I do in you. It's from the inside out. I love the way that C.S. Lewis said this. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. I think Jesus would look at us and say, do you you want the cheap stuff? Do you want the old system? You want watered down, uh, I'm connected to a religious club Christianity? Do do you want the American dream? 
Or do you want new wine? Do you want a new kind of life? Do you want to know me? Listen, will you let me change you at the deepest levels? It'll be better than anything you've ever experienced. Doesn't mean you're going to be comfortable. Doesn't, ma- doesn't mean you're going to be successful by our standard in our country, but you're going to have what you're looking for, what you really want. Because here's the thing. I grew up right here, right here in Akron, Ohio. And for 18 years, Jesus was right under my nose. Church buildings everywhere. Even had a Bible in my house. One of my best friends was a pastor's kid. And I could not see Jesus or the offer that he had made to me. Couldn't see it. And all the while, I'm running through the choice wine and the cheap stuff. And I'm running out. And I'm wondering, is there anything else? Oh, is there anything else to live for? Is there anything else this life has to give me? Where do I find my purpose and my joy? What am I made for? He was right there the whole time, offering me the new wine. I wonder today if we can see that, Jesus. Same one, change water to wine, is looking at you and I and saying, I'll make you new from the inside out. I can give you what you're looking for, what you really want to find. It's available. But you got to put down the rest and take what I'm offering, a new way to live, a new heart to have. I'll tell you guys, I, I wonder if we might consider that today. Whether you've been around Christian stuff your whole life or you're kind of brand new to it, can you see Jesus? The one who can transform water into wine? Can you see his offer to make us new from the inside out? Well, as you consider that today, we're going to celebrate a changed life in baptism. I love that we can do that. Hear a story of how this actually works in lives today because the same Jesus that changed water or wine is changing lives all around us. As we listen to that story and watch it, would you consider that yourself? Jesus, are you actually the one I'm looking for? You've been there the whole time. How many move towards you today? Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for showing us your glory. Even at this first miracle, Lord, you tipped your hat at what you ultimately came to do. To give your life and allow death to happen to you, that you might rise from the dead and freely offer life change to anybody who would have it. God, today I ask that you would help us to believe like the disciples believed, that you can change us from the inside, and that we can find the joy and the purpose that we deep down long to find. Lord, you want, to, you want to give it to us. You long for us to have this life and this joy more than we can possibly imagine. In fact, 
It's the passion that drove you to the cross. Lord, speak to us today. Help us to see you, fresh eyes, hear you with fresh ears. See your offer as something that's for us, for the here and the now. Lord, would you meet us here, even now this morning? It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.